0: Fast Forward Productions, the women are speaking. The reason that I had approached Alex is because I ran my first half marathon after chemo. It was probably one of the first times in my life that I could not make myself like push through. And I was just absolutely stunned. But I think through the last year of us working together, it's been mainly a journey of radical acceptance of where I'm at and what is possible for me. And I think the acceptance actually allowed me to hope again.
1: Good morning, or good evening, or good afternoon, or even good midnight. It's wild to think that we have people listening from all over the world at all different times, wearing a bra, not wearing a bra, maybe eating or not eating, currently in an argument with their spouse, or maybe enjoying a rare happy moment with their spouse listening to this podcast together. If you are forcing your spouse to listen to this podcast because it's your favorite, thank you. Hopefully this next hour will be enough to win them over because it's a good one. We have one of my clients on the pod. Her name is Sherry Todd. I have been wanting to have her on the podcast for a while because she really lives into and preaches herself our messaging about focusing on the process and not results, among other messages we share. Sherry is a runner, an athlete, a mom of two older boys, a wife, a cancer survivor, her own person, and a work in progress. It's hard to sum up this podcast in a short intro because we get pretty deep. We talk about a whole plethora of topics that are far from superficial. We dig into identity, connection, trauma, therapy, running, cancer, life after cancer, and working one-on-one with yours truly. I think there is something for everyone in this podcast. I have been really excited to share it, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Sherry, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, happy to have you on. We've been talking about having you on the podcast for a long time. Every time you you do a post or like a reflection or something, we're like, ah, oh, we have to have her on the podcast because so much of your, your messaging and your personal experience aligns so much with our messaging and our personal experience and our like experience with the business and that sort of thing. So finally, nice to have you. We usually start the podcast off with like a little story and I'm like super embarrassed by this, but I need to just share it. Otherwise, I'm just going to have to deal with the shame all by myself and with Meredith. Although Meredith doesn't help me manage it. She just makes it worse. But I do that. Our new cat, Mel, has some like eye issue. So she gets like eye boogers and stuff quite frequently, like more than Ivy. So we took her to the vet and apparently she needs to get like a whole dental thing because she has inflammation around her gums and she's gonna need teeth pulled and cleaned and all that. But also for her eyes, the vet gave us eye drops and we have to put the eye drops in three times a day, every day to try to clear up what this could be. And it's been like a week and we've been avoiding it because she's not the best
2: patient. Well, I don't think like eye drops for a cat is ever gonna be the easiest task. Yeah. Yeah, that seems dumb. Yeah. I have given her I gave her one eye drop in one eye
1: and that was last week and I haven't tried again since. But last night I'm like, hey, okay, we got to do this. Like, let's start now. So I'm like, Meredith, you help me like hold her down. Like I'll put the eye drop in. So another point that I have to mention is that Rue also just had surgery. She had her spay and like Rue's been to the vet a lot because she's just a very active dog. So we have like a lot of different like medications and things in our drawer. So I go into the drawer to get the eye drops and I'm like, I remember it in a little bottle, like a dropper bottle. And I grab it and I go over and I'm like, hey Meredith, like hold Mel down, like I'll get her. And as soon as the bottle dripped a drop, I knew it wasn't the right bottle because what was (laughs) it? First time I dripped an eye drop into Mel's eye last week by myself, it was a very like clear viscous. Is it viscous? Non-viscous. like it Non-viscous. Like what, it was like an, water. An eye drop should look like <clears throat> saline-based. So I dripped this drop last night, and it was like green and goopy. As soon as I saw it like dripping down, I was like, oh no. So thankfully, like I said, Mel is a horrible patient. So like it was hard to get it in her eye, and it landed like on her eyelid.
2: And I was like, wait, stop. And kind of like, I'm the one who's doing the eye drops and I haven't done the eye no, drops. No, I before. was doing the eye drops. Were you? It was a team effort. I don't know.
1: It was, there was a lot of chaos. So thankfully it didn't land in her eye. And I look at this bottle and it's in the tiniest writing and it was like oral something. And I was like, it this was definitely is
2: an eye drops. Inseds. It was Rue's pain medication that she's been getting orally with like a syringe. It was like dropping oh. into the cat's eyeball.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully it didn't go in her eye. And I have like this nervous laugh. So people think I think it's funny, but it's not. It's like, holy shit. Like we just dodged a bullet. I'm
2: glad that it didn't land in her eyeball. So she's laughing. I'm ticked. I'm like, (laughs) why are you laughing at this? You don't know that it didn't go in her eye. So I'm like getting it to flush her eye. Meanwhile, Googling what happens if you get this particular medication in an eyeball. Or like, what if it even just got like on her eyelid? I mean, it could be absorbed, I'm sure. I know. I know. It's okay. Everything's fine. But I was like, look, like if you don't want to be in charge of the animals medications, you can just let me know. You don't have to do a bad job and like make me want to take over, you know, like, oh, I guess I'm just bad at it.
0: So in that moment, like, okay, when you guys have conflict like that, like where it's like heated because something kind of scary happened or whatever. Are you guys like withdraw and like come back to it later or are you like go for it?
1: I think we both took a moment. And then it was kind of quiet. We started getting ready for bed. And I think I said, humans are allowed to make mistakes. (laughs) And thankfully, Meredith at that point had like, let it go. She knows that it wasn't cool. She's sorry. Like, I'm going to let it go. And so thankfully, that was how it happened. But sometimes it can like escalate. Yeah. To like, you're an idiot. Like, you're not responsible. Like... Taking something small into like who you are as a person. That's something I do. And, but also Meredith does it sometimes too. I'm a little more silent.
0: Well, with and it. it's, We do it to ourselves too. Yeah. Like, so, because then we're in our own cycle of like shaming ourselves and then responding to the other person as though they're shaming us, but we're actually doing it to ourselves. And you're like,
2: look, I didn't say anything. And then it's like, <laughs> you didn't have to say anything, here. you know,
0: the look on your face said it all. I have a whole story. And we're
2: like, I'm like, <laughs> should I even have a cat? Like,
1: Am I, like, responsible enough to be in charge of living creatures? And then I'm like, we're friends with the vet. Like, what is she going to think when I have to tell her I put Ruse medication (laughs) in Mel's eyeball? Oh, we're 100% going to
2: tell her that story. (laughs) <laughs> she listens to the podcast too. I know who's gonna tell her.
1: Once I was giving Rue a taste of my bagel and it was cinnamon raisin bagel and I recorded it and she messaged me out of like kindness and like you should know, dogs are very allergic to raisins. Yeah. Like they can die. They yeah. could die. But like I'm pretty sure that licking a cinnamon raisin bagel isn't gonna do it, based on my research.
0: Yeah. Trust me, one time our dog ate gopher poison and like almost died. It was very horrible. Like because it was a cyanide poison and it was horrible. But also, he didn't die. And then also they were like, oh, we're going to have to keep him in the hospital for like two days, solid. And then after he was there for like six hours, they were like, could you please come get your dog? Because he's better and he's very upset that we're not playing with him and he's bothering everyone. And I'm like,
2: yeah, no problem. Uh, that's funny.
1: <laughs> Anyways, I thought it would be cool to kind of start off with having you introduce yourself. I know, obviously, you're very deep and you've got a lot to you. You have quite the history. You have kids. You obviously have a career and a lot of things to share. But if you could just kind of give us like an overview. And then also, if you could at the end, just talk a little bit about how you found Tactic and how long we've been working together. You're my client, but I would say you're a pretty big part of the community. And so you even talk with Meredith and stuff pretty frequently, too. So yeah, uh, a little bit about that, if you wouldn't mind as well, just so people understand our background. And I'm happy to share, too.
0: Yeah. Okay. great. I am 49. I will be 50 this year. I live in Southern California. I have two boys. One is 29 and one is 19, who will be 20 on Friday. And a grandchild on the way, who will be born sometime around May 1st. I'm married. I'm an operations manager for a land surveying company, which nobody ever knows what that is. And it's the people that look like they're taking pictures with an orange square looking thing on a tripod on the side of the road. So basically, I work in the construction industry with a bunch of dudes. I was a stay at home mom and homeschooled my kids for 15 years. So my eldest son was homeschooled kindergarten through 12th grade. And my youngest son was homeschooled kindergarten through sixth grade. When I got a divorce, I put my kid at school and my youngest and got a job. And so that's where I am now. My athletic background is I've always worked out in some form as an adult. I've done endurance running, triathlon, powerlifting, CrossFit. And now I've kind of settled on some happy mix of those things. I also like hiking and backpacking. I have a dog who's super cute. Is this the one that almost died? Yes. He's my first dog because I always thought I did not like dogs, but then I realized I was afraid of dogs. And then once I had friends that like helped me understand dogs, then I wasn't afraid of them Cause I thought if they barked, they were going to bite you, but I didn't understand. Like they're just telling you something. And now I like, I totally love my dog. He's Super cute. Yeah. That's awesome. I found Alex and tactic in June of last year, I was coming out of cancer treatment and I had been working with a nutrition coach that I was super happy with for like five years. I had a running coach. I had a nutrition coach. I was doing online AI generated weightlifting and I was trying to manage all of that myself and really, really struggling with being overwhelmed and burned out and not understanding how my body was working. So I decided that I wanted to find a coach that could do all of those things for me. The nutrition coach that I was working with didn't do programming at the time and wasn't an endurance athlete, so that didn't seem like a viable option. So I started to look and I had like a short list of people, but it was actually really surprising how hesitant people were to work with me because of my history of cancer, which was super disappointing to me because I feel like I was still healthier than like a large portion of the population. But when I messaged a tactic, and I don't know if it was Alex or Meredith that responded at first, but like you guys responded like really quickly and were like, oh yeah, it's no problem. We can work with you. And it was such a breath of fresh air because there's so much bullshit in the nutrition industry. And as a cancer survivor, it was like one of two camps. Somebody didn't want to work with you or they wanted to work with you and they wanted to sell you their like little rebalancing program about how your hormones are all off now, because now you're in medically induced menopause. And if you just pay $3,000 in six weeks, I can totally transform your life. And I mean, I'm pretty knowledgeable about nutrition, because I've invested in learning about nutrition for the last like 10 years. And yeah, it was such a pleasure to talk to you guys and interact with you because you're very easy to communicate with. And also, I could tell that you knew what you were talking about from a science perspective. And yeah, so I felt really safe going into a relationship with you guys, even with all of the fears and baggage that I had at that time, you guys do a really good job of your onboarding. I feel like like presenting what you do and like what you don't do and how much it costs and what you're provided. And I felt like that was really good on your part.
1: Yeah. When you first reached out, I think we had a conversation and then you were, you're were pretty much like signed up that day. It was very quick and you've been very enthusiastic right from the get go, like you're really a dream client. And we've talked about the pillars of a good client. And I think you meet every single one of those things, because like, you're very honest, and you share a lot. But you're also extremely like reflective and like, there's like a level of like criticism that's not unproductive, but it's like productive. It's like constructive criticism, reflection on yourself. Like you're like, hey, like I read this book and I it kind of like resonated with me and I think this is where I can improve. Or like, for example, if you wouldn't like mind sharing, the one thing that I really enjoyed not super early on, but after a couple months of working together, you had kind of a rule that you had created for yourself about your complaining, complaining about things, which I think we all do to a degree. There's always things that in our lives that we complain about or wish we could change. But what was your kind of rule for that?
0: I have really like not been a complainer too much, but coming out of like cancer, I just felt so screwed in general. And I was having a very negative like outlook on a lot of things. So my rule was if I complained about something three times, then I either had to do something to change the situation or do something to accept the situation, but stop complaining about it because it was basically an exercise in futility. Actually, it wasn't even futile. It was like worse than futile because it was negatively impacting me and making me feel like everything in my life sucked. And my complaining was making me unable to see the good parts of my life. And what are we even doing then? Like, what am I doing? Like, I mean, I'm just wasting every single moment that I'm doing that. And I'm not here for that. So yeah, I don't always follow it really good. Like I recently made like another rule about that. And I was thinking today, like, oh, I'm not always following that really good. But I'm, I know when I'm not following it, the first step is awareness. So (laughs) yeah, what's the other rule? The other rule is, so when I'm not feeling good about myself, I tend to be critical of other people. and like verbalize things like oh could you believe so and so did this because for whatever crappy reason it makes me feel better about myself and so the rule is if i'm going to complain verbally about somebody else and i'm complaining and it's not to the person then i need to not do that if i've not talked to them directly about it first and if i haven't talked to them directly about it then clearly it's not that important so i need to just shut it so like That has really helped a lot, like with situations at work and like interpersonal, like just friendships, because I find like, sometimes I'm ruminating on something, like it's this big deal because I'm verbalizing it. And then I'm like, okay, so talk to them about it. And then I think about that conversation and I'm like, yeah, it's probably not a big deal. Maybe just let it go, girl. Let it go.
1: (laughs) That's a good rule. We always say language shapes reality. And I think... What comes out of our mouths, whether it's to, or, I mean, I think even like sometimes thoughts can shape reality a little bit too. But I think once it's like coming out of your mouth, it's even more impactful. So that's a really good rule. And I think that does take like a lot of awareness. It's like a form of like checking yourself. It's not coming from a place of like judgment, like, oh, I'm a negative person on this. It's like, it comes from a place of wanting to improve your overall outlook, which is, I mean, it's exactly it. It's just like you're critical and that like you want to make things better. But you're not critical and like you do ruminate or judge or that sort of thing, which is really important.
0: Yeah, I think one of the signs of work and maturity is finding the difference between those two and recognizing that you can see your faults or your struggles, but you can separate those from your identity and you can address them because you're not afraid. And I think that's the root of freedom. I was in a 20-year marriage that was super emotionally abusive. Like I was cheated on, like all of our money got stolen by my ex, and it was really bad. Like, it's so embarrassing to me now, like the way I behaved in that relationship. So I did some really intense therapy, including a method called EMDR, which is a treatment modality where they kind of reframe. They don't reframe. They basically reshelve the way memories are accessed neurologically through A method that they use. And have you guys heard of that?
2: Yeah, it's like uh, it utilizes neuroplasticity with like neural pathways that are specifically linked to trauma and memory. Yeah, it's so interesting, because the modality that I use, there's several different methods
0: of doing EMDR. The one I did was eye movement desensitization and reprogramming. And so I looked at a light that was moving back and forth on a computer. And if you go to recall memory, like if I tell you, hey, do you remember what you did yesterday, your eyes will go up and they'll either go up to the right or to the left. So when you look at this light while you're trying to recall something, your brain recalls it in, in a bit of a different way because it can't use the pathway that it normally uses. I'm sure that there's far more technical like ways to describe this, but I'm giving the simplified version. And the first step to doing EMDR is you have to make a list of traumatic events that have happened to you. And let me tell you something. I avoided doing that work for probably a good six months. And I was going to therapy every single week. And I was paying cash because my insurance didn't cover the good therapist. And I was so afraid of what was inside of me. But my God, if I would have just known that when I faced it down, what the world's like, I mean, I was over 40 when I did that. And I mean... I tell my kids or anybody young that I like talk to, like, don't wait. I wish that I would have done this before because I mean, it was like from that very first session, the world was never the same to me. I was never the same to me. Like, I didn't hate myself every moment of every day. And I didn't hate like every coping mechanism I had. I understood myself. I kind of didn't believe in it because like I didn't really understand how it worked. And so, like, the first session, I was like, yeah, this doesn't work on me. Like, I'm just a very logical person. And so like, I'm sure this works for a lot of your patients, but like, I'm just not like that. So like, we might have to use a different method. And she's like, okay, like, can you stop talking? And like, can we start this again? And so she did it like three times and she stopped and she's like, can you please turn and face me? Stop. You need to like commit to the therapy and you need to do this. And I was like, whatever. It was crazy because I brought up this memory and it's like, have you guys ever seen those shows on TV where, They show somebody stealing somebody's purse, right? Like they run in, they steal somebody's purse and then they run away. And then they're like, did you see what color the baseball cap was that the gentleman was wearing or whatever? And then you're like, no. And then they slow it down and you see all these things that you didn't see before. And that's exactly what it's like. It's like you see you, but then you see all of the things around you that were happening to you or that you were a child or whatever. And you're like, oh, I wasn't a screw up. I was in a really bad situation and I did the best I could. And then that kind of reframes everything. Wow. That was a huge tangent, but I can't think about thinking about addressing my faults or things that I do wrong without thinking about that experience because it just changed everything. And since then, I can't really, I mean, I'm sure you can tell by my expressions, but I just can't really verbally describe the sense of relief of A, being able to be who I am and not being afraid of that and B, understanding that there are going to be people that don't like that and that that's okay. And that doesn't change my value or worthiness as a human being. And I lived for a very, well, let's see, I'm 49 and I think this probably happened when I was about 41. So I lived a very huge part of my life never knowing those things. The world is just a way different place than I thought it was most of my life.
1: Sorry, that was a big rabbit trail. (laughs) No, that was awesome. It's funny when you were telling the story, Meredith and I, well, everyone knows we're gay. And that honestly sounds exactly like coming out of the closet like what you said, where it's like, you realize like some people aren't going to like it, but that's okay. It's just like the whole world changes when you can be who you are. You don't have this like secret or this baggage or this cloud. I don't even know how to describe it. It's hard to describe. In some ways it feels like a cloud. In some ways it feels like you're pulling something. It doesn't allow you to just like fully express or like live in your life. But Meredith and I talk sometimes we're like, I don't necessarily think the closet just applies to people who are like queer. It's like, It applies to straight people, too, who are living with, like, secrets or shame or anything that kind of just, like, they're hiding. They're hiding a big part of themselves or hiding an experience, even, like, from their own self. It's amazing what happens when you just dig a little bit deeper. And I sometimes don't even think, for some people, like, Not that I'm one to judge or say like, you need to do this. I mean, I'm not saying I see it in everybody, but sometimes it's not even about like going to therapy or doing EMDR, although that's very helpful for some people. It's just like acknowledging that there's that thing, because I think some of us just like shove it down so far. It is amazing how those things can be so, so life changing because they impact these like daily things.
2: I think a lot of people think that they understand themselves, so they know exactly who they are. They have it all figured out. I am who I am. And it's like, you have no idea. I think that when you kind of accept that there's a lot about yourself that you probably don't know and you're not aware of, and that the lens that you're choosing to view life through, like that's not the only lens that there is. And sometimes when, you know, you do the work like EMDR therapy, or even just self-work reading books and starting to learn about certain concepts, the lens gets bigger or it changes like, you know, your rule about complaining You know, about something three times and then changing it or accepting it and, you know, verbalizing negatives about other people without talking like that's a lens. And some people, they get so stuck in that. And it's not to say that you need to go through life and be toxically positive about things. But I think that there is a I mean, because it is that's toxic. And, you know, those people when you share something with them, that's difficult they just sort of complimented away or they don't want to sit with you in those feelings. Just get
0: cancer and you'll really find all of those people. Yeah. I mean, don't get cancer, but you know what I mean?
2: The things that people will say to you to just like not have to be there with you and deal with what that brings up for them. Where in reality, if you can accept that suffering and hardship as a part of the human experience and maintain some gratefulness for the positives that you still have, like, Those are the things that provide the necessary contrast in life to be able to experience joy and happiness. Like if you never had to suffer, you wouldn't know how to be happy. You wouldn't know joy. And so when you can sort of put aside like I'm not going to allow myself to suffer all of the time for my own doing because I refuse to like snap out of this bullshit energy. Like now you can experience both. And that's like, that's a huge component of what you described with both of those rules that you have. And then going the extra step with the EMDR and therapy. I think anyone who's ever done trauma work with therapy, like that's hard. That is hard before it gets better. And sometimes it's hard for a really long time. And sometimes it's hard and then it's better and then it's hard again. And so you're just like, you're constantly in and out of this, like, well, shit, what am I even doing? But that's the work. You know, why am I doing this if it hurts so bad? But the reality is because on the other side of that, you get to come out of that closet and you get to be who you are, a changed person in, you know, one way or more often many ways. And yeah, like you said, that can upset people, that can challenge people, people, family, friends. They don't like when people change because it exposes them. And so people will say all kinds of stuff like, oh, Sherry, you know, oh, Sherry does this with food or like whatever one of your coping mechanisms is. And it's like, dude, what the fuck? Like you by saying that you're keeping me in that situation. You're manifesting that for me. And so that's like, that's when you have to know, like, hey, here's the boundary, you're out. Or at least if you cross this, we're done. And that's, again, that's level two hard work after therapy. So
0: it feels so like, well, it feels like dominoes, right? Because one of the other things I was like kind of popped into my head when you were saying that and I don't know if you guys found this too when you came out was being authentically myself helps me so much more accept and love other people because before the paradigm that I was living in was I'm doing things the right way and if people don't like me I'm not bad so they're bad and I had to make them bad I had to make what they were thinking bad or something about them bad for me to be okay and now I'm like oh they're not bad we're just not for each other and like That's okay. And I feel so much less critical and like just attacking in my mind of people because I feel like it's okay for them to be themselves. And it's okay if they don't like me, that's okay. That was another kind of like cool thing that happened out of that. But I do feel like when you start to address trauma, it sets off this domino effect and it can be really discouraging. I was actually talking to a friend about that this week because she was saying, you know, this thing happened and I'm just right back where I started. And I was thinking, well, gosh, I think it's been a year since you were in that. And so you're not really right back where you started because look at the interval between the times that you're experiencing this deep darkness. And then also look at the duration of the darkness because you've developed so many tools and so many resources and you're using them. And so I think that's one thing I've had to like, this thought that I've had to tell myself over the years to keep myself going. Because I feel like, you know, I got out of my marriage of 20 years and immediately married somebody else because they were like, oh, I've been interested in you. And I was like, yes, because I'm this great Christian woman and this bad thing has been done to me, but I bear no responsibility in this bad relationship. I was a victim here. And so if I just marry this other person, then it'll be amazing. Spoiler alert it was not amazing. And I was part of the problem. And so that quickly developed into a whole, I mean, it was a super short term relationship, but it just blew up. Like here was my life. I was this like homeschool, stay at home, Christian mom, super churchy, did all the Bible studies and had built really a community. I'm a community builder, had built a community based on that. And all of a sudden now I'm like twice divorced. I was basically kicked out of my church, not kicked out of the church, but like all the roles that I fulfilled, I was told that I had to step down from they kick you out without saying, you know, they totally do kick you out. Yeah, I'm very not much not a churchy person now. And then I realized, Oh, I used to do that. Hmm. Nice, like, good that you can see it now. But yeah, you have to keep working. And it's not like you do this work, and you're entitled to anything, because then all of that bullshit happened. And then I got cancer. And I was like, what the heck? Like, hi, like limit reached. I'm good. But that's not how life works. It's not how any of it works. You're entitled to nothing, right, Alex?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. There's so many ways to measure progress too. Like (sighs) progress is not You know, never having an issue. Progress is doing things better than you did in the past, or like you said, the frequency duration of certain episodes being less. Like that's still progress. Absolutely. You have to be well willing to look at it that way. Well, like
0: I always thought, you know, you learn things. I don't know if you guys thought this when you were younger, but I thought you get to a certain age and you know. Like you know what's up, you know what to do, you know how to react. Like, that's such a crock of shit that's perpetuated by people that want other people to think they're something other than they are. And like, I don't know hardly anything. I'm just figuring it out. And like, I mean, even parenting or stuff that you're supposed to know what you're doing, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, sometimes it's the first time I'm doing anything. And so I thought it would be that way with trauma. Like, I'm going to do this therapy and then I'm going to go out in the world and I'm going to be this shiny person that can do all of these things well. And it's like, no, you're the same person. You just have some more tools in your bag, you know? That was kind of disappointing, but. Once I like figured out that's the way of the world, it's actually really helpful because you could use your tools in lots of things, not just, you know, not marrying 17 people that are the wrong ones for you or whatever, but okay, only three. I've only been married three times, but.
2: Adulthood's really disappointing in that way though. Like you kind of realize like, your parents were faking it and all these people in your family or these authority figures (laughs) that you thought had it figured out definitely didn't, but they didn't share any of that in a way that would actually help you develop as a human being. So
1: you just figured out the hard way. My mom, like I think approached motherhood and she was, she's very loving, but there was definitely an element of tough love. And now I'm thinking back, thanking her for this, because when you say like, oh, you know, people enter their adulthood and they think they know everything. I'm like, I don't. Like, I graduated from high school and my mom's like, you've done nothing. You know nothing. You've accomplished nothing. I was like, OK. So it's like, of course, I'm like, now I need to go to college and then I need to go to law school. Like, mom, do you approve of me now? Anyways, she did say also she's a retired lawyer, but she always used to say, like, you know, being a lawyer because I was a young lawyer at one point, And I was like, I don't know anything. I feel like I don't know anything ever. She's like, that's kind of the way it always is you're just constantly learning and that's the beauty of life. And it's surprising to me when I have a day where I'm like, I've done this before. I know how to do this. (laughs) Like it feels good, but it's like almost rare. And maybe that's just the nature of my job too. It's always changing and you're working with people and people provide like novel environments and that sort of thing. So it's always like problem solving and approaching new conversations and how to handle different people. And I think that's what's great about it, but you have to accept that that's the way it is like if you're always you know expecting to know how to handle every situation then you're gonna be frustrated and you're gonna feel defeated a lot of the time rather than approaching it like okay I don't know how to do this, but I don't know how to do anything. And I've learned and I've gotten this far. And sometimes I think I feel this way in like my relationship with Meredith. Like I told her the other day, I'm like, this is the longest relationship I've ever had by six and a half years. Like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know. What is it even supposed to be like at this point? Like, it's like, you know, asking for help or just saying like, it's okay. Like I can figure this out or we can figure this out together. But yeah, that's like an interesting point.
2: You left out the part about occasionally still trying to blow it up. Oh yeah.
1: That goes without saying. (laughs) I do say sometimes I don't know how to do this. We should abandon ship. I did leave that part out, but.
0: Well, that's the, like the self-doubt cycle, because like last week I had this terrible week at work. I kind of talked about it a little bit on tactic run club. So I work with a lot of kind of old school dudes in the construction industry. And so I have to be very firm and like calm with putting up boundaries. And I have to be very clear, like what my boundaries are. And I have to often be repetitive about that. And in turn, sometimes I'm cursed at or like called a bitch or, you know, whatever, or being called unreasonable or emotional when I'm speaking in a very calm voice. And Bob is having, you know, a little bit of a heart attack and screaming like a shrill little girl. But anyhow, like after a while, I start to think, well, it must be me. And so I go back into that cycle of, oh man, like everybody thinks I'm annoying and everybody thinks I'm a jerk. And like, I am a jerk. And I think the great thing about doing work and putting up boundaries and changing the parameters of people's access to you and the dynamics of your relationship is when you spiral into that, you have people around you that you can say, hey, I'm in trouble. I'm really struggling here. Can I be vulnerable with you? And they take that thing that you give them and it's safe with them and they reflect back to you what they see and they're never going to take it out of their pocket and use it against you later because they love you and they're your person. And that has been one of the biggest surprises over and over to me about what real love is because I never knew that before. Even really in friendships a lot, I just had this very transactional relationships model with people. And I liked that because I knew what to expect. And I'm a super type A controlling as Alex will attest to. I'm like, I need to know everything. I need to ask many questions, but it never really lets people love you because they're loving the script and the version of you that you're giving them in your transactions, but never the raw yucky parts of you that aren't lovable by anybody. And then you can show those to people and then they love you still. And you're like, Oh my God, like, this is just how people walk around. Like in these relationships, it makes me want to cry thinking of it because I think about what I thought love was. And I thought love was two perfect people like matching up with all their perfection. And it's so the opposite of that. It's like two or more, whatever, imperfect people that can see and be seen and everybody's okay. It's also shifted like my like idea of what a good marriage is or what a good friendship is, you know, because I used to think it looked a certain way. And now I'm like, no, it's just if you can tolerate the person's mess and if they can tolerate yours, you know?
2: Yeah. And that goes the same for every relationship. Like I remember reading this a while ago that you should fall in love with your friends, like not obviously the same romantic type of love that would underlie a marriage or a long-term relationship, but, you know, it is still love. And I think English language is limited in many ways. And having only one word for that is one of those ways, you know, affirmation work and self-care is really important. But one of the the best ways to feel better about yourself, especially if you're in kind of a hard patch, is to call a friend and just ask them, why are we friends? Like, why are you friends with me? Especially if it's a good friend who isn't going to be like, well, because you go to church and I go to church, you know, that kind of friendship. But who's going to tell you, like, this is why I like you. This is why we're friends and reflect to you all of these good, positive qualities. Also accepting that, you know, you have some not so positive qualities. And that is part of the package.
1: I think it was in the book, The Practice of Groundedness by Brad Stolberg, where he said that often when you share something that is something that maybe you feel shame about or that's a secret or that's a deeper part of you or something that maybe isn't seen as like objectively good, you feel like that's a weakness. It's coming off as a weakness. But the person who's receiving that sees it as a form of strength. And vulnerability, I think, is strength. And I think it bonds us as people. And like, as soon as I came out of the closet and I started sharing things like, I would actually have relationships where I would have a breakup where I would cry because I actually cared about the person because I wasn't just dating someone to have somebody that was somebody I was dating and like covered up what I was hiding. That's when I started making real friends. I remember the first time that happened. It was like I was dating someone in secret, sort of like, but it was a girl. We broke up and I was really sad. And I remember telling another friend in law school about that. And like instantly it was like I had never had a relationship like that with anyone Because it was like for the first time I was able to like share a feeling that was like truth, like really being sad and like really meant something to me. And it's amazing how you bond over those like emotional experiences. And like, I think so many people are afraid of sharing with others because we feel like we're, what's the word? Burdening. Burdening them. them. But it feels so good when someone chooses you to share their struggles with. And so I think it's like you're almost giving that person a gift to say like, hey, can I share this with you? I need you to listen or I need your advice or whatever it may be. It's like, I love when people tell me stuff like that. When I say like, hey, if you know, this is a safe space if you ever wanted to open up and share and I love it when people do. It does feel like a gift and it's like, it's a reminder like how good that makes you feel as a person to be the receiver and the person who's caring for that person. To say, like, it's okay if I share with someone else. It's not a burden. It's a gift and it's a way to connect and it just enhances your life in so many ways.
0: I think I really learned that a lot. I think I grew up with vulnerability. It truly was a weakness because in my family of origin, it was often used against you. And if somehow, like in my first marriage, if you were vulnerable about something and anything about the story you were sharing could be traced back to something you did wrong, then everything you were sharing was your fault. And so I learned like repeatedly that vulnerability was a weakness. But when I started making different friends after I changed my life, two things. One, I will never forget when I was being super dramatic about something, and I can't even remember what it was, but it was probably about work. To my group of girlfriends, I had this really good group of girlfriends. And I was like, Oh, sorry, I'm so annoying. Like did my thing, my thing where I'm like, Oh, I'm so annoying. But now you're supposed to say no, you're not. And then we're like, Oh, okay. And they're like, Yeah, you are kind of annoying right now. But we're all annoying sometimes. And like, it's just your turn today. And it's okay. And then like, everybody just kept eating chips and salsa. And I'm like, Oh, like, Oh, like, it's okay for me to be the one that needs the things and like, that's okay. And with cancer. I'm not generally like a crier. I'm an internal. Like, if I have big emotions, I usually try to like. If they're scary, I try to process them like by myself. So I usually withdraw. And there was this one time at Friday Fun Run. I have a group that I've had since 2008 that meets at my house on Fridays, and we run and have coffee. And the community's changed over the years. It's changed a lot from when I changed for sure. But it's just a beautiful group of humans. And I thought that I had a recurrence of my cancer, and I was waiting to get this PET scan. And I wanted to tell the group, but I had such big feelings about it. And I started to tell them and I just started sobbing, like not crying, like ugly crying, like sobbing, like I had snot and like there was mascara and we were all at the table. And I just started like crying and saying like, guys, what if I die? Like, I'm so scared. And nobody tried to tell me everything was going to be okay. I felt like everybody just connected with me from their perspective of their personality and what they bring to the table. Like one person was telling me like, look at all the hikes that we've done this year. Like you're strong. And like one person would say, it's okay to be scared. We had one person whose wife had just passed away from cancer and he's like, I know exactly how you feel. And you know, when you are vulnerable in the wrong group and you leave and you're like, wow. I feel so awful and I feel so ashamed and I feel this panicked sense of needing to text everybody and explain where I was coming from and how they can still like me and that it's okay. None of that. Like everybody just started drinking their coffee again and like patted me on the hand and it just felt so good to be able to be scared in front of people and not have people tell me, you're okay, buck up, look on the bright side, but also not have people think, okay, this is your whole identity now. You're just this breakdown crier girl. No, it was just normal. And I don't know if it's the same, like for you just being yourself, like initially after coming out, but it's just such a relief. It's just such a relief. And I know I've used that word a lot, but it just, it really never stops feeling like a relief to me in big moments because I was like, wow, this is not how I used to live. And this feels so great. Even when it feels kind of crappy, like it feels great to be yourself. So and to be accepted and to be seen. Like, I think that's the biggest thing is I feel like people actually know me now. And sometimes I'm like, well, I wish you didn't know that thing. But <laughs> you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, yeah, you don't have to apologize for having like being a human being and having very human experiences, which is what those like superficial kind of relationships and friendships make you feel like you have to do or the family of origin stuff. If that's been the pattern of vulnerability where it does get traced back to like you did something wrong. Well, how does that play out when you have cancer? Like, what did I do wrong then? Like there comes a time where like, you know, you can believe that you're as the most logical person on the planet, but that doesn't make sense. I think people will be
0: willing to tell you what you did wrong because, and this is one thing I've learned through divorce, through leaving the church, through having cancer is when something really bad happens to you or perceived like bad, people want to find a reason that it happened to you so that they're safe. Like, well, you got a divorce, but I remember this one woman saying, yeah, was it because you ran all those marathons and your husband felt like you weren't really there for your family? One other person at the church said, did you guys eat dinner at the table together every night? And I was like, you know, these people are trying to make it so that they can say, well, I do this thing. So this isn't going to happen to me. And it was the same when I got cancer. I mean, people were like, did you use bleach to clean your sink? Or, you know, Diet, Diet Coke? A hundred percent. And I'm just like, Like, I remember screenshotting some and like scribbling out the names, but sending them to people. I'm like, you guys, I'm not lying. Like people say crazy crap to you. And I think it's because they want to feel safe, but man, it sucks because people just want to figure out what did you do to cause this to happen to yourself? So I don't do it. So that doesn't happen to me. It's the same thing with cancer treatment. Like you're so strong. That's why you do it. It's like, it's luck. It's luck. Like I was telling my girlfriend She was just getting a repeat PET scan to see how her chemo went. And she's like, well, the odds are this. I'm like, the odds are 50-50. Like, either it got rid of it or it didn't. And, like, same thing with my last CT. The odds are 50-50. Either I have METs in my lungs or I don't. (laughs) But you're not going to do anything magical. You're not special. Like, you're just regular. We're all regular.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: You have talked and mentioned a few times about your cancer. I remember when you signed up in your intake form, you said, I've had cancer, but I don't want to be known as Sherry who had cancer. I just want to be Sherry. And I like that. And I remember having that as a note in my head, like almost to be sensitive about it, but like sensitive and like, don't be sensitive. You know what I mean? But also as we've worked together and like, even as you've talked this podcast, it's obviously a part of you and it's a part of your recent history and it's shaped you and i'm sure taught you things and it's come up when we've talked about mindset or outlook and that sort of thing would you mind sharing a little bit about kind of like what kind of cancer you had when you had it maybe a little bit about that process and like coming out of it your experience to a degree with returning to running returning to strength training and like how you've kind of over the last few months specifically in your work with me like how your mindset and perspective have shifted around you know body composition and performance and that sort of thing because I think that's been that would be I think helpful but and not to take away from your experience with your health issues but I really think even it's such a great takeaway for people everywhere especially as we age and our life circumstances change and our phases of life change. It's just, it's such a healthy perspective. And I think we hopefully will all face that in some way and come out on the other side, like where you are now, even though it's still a work in progress, but it might be helpful for you to share it just to kind of like plant the seed in some people's heads.
0: Does it seem like just a question? Does it seem to you like, like I feel way different than when we first started working together? like, does that seem obvious to you? Like as my coach, like that I'm like in a good place with things?
1: Yeah. I mean, certainly there's been a huge shift in perspective and outlook and mindset and It's subjective in what I find, If what I think is important for people in their health or wellness journeys or even performance-based journeys. I think they're all intertwined, but there's important things to focus on and there's less important things. And I think that you've shifted from the less important things to the more important things and the process-based things rather than results. And we talk about that all the time, but I'll let you take it away.
0: Okay. So gosh, back in
1: 2018, I found a lump in my
0: breast on self-exam. I... Panicked, I went to the doctor and she ordered a mammogram, and then they ordered an ultrasound and they watched it for a while. Actually, it must have been 2016 because I think 2018 was when they biopsied it. So, yeah. Anyway, it was a long time ago, and they watched it, and then it started growing. So they did a biopsy. It was determined to be benign, so they could just continued watching it. And then it got to the point where it was stable, and they said you can just have mammograms once a year, which was I think around 2019. Then COVID happened and around the time COVID happened, it started growing like really rapidly, like getting very large. And you could actually see it like when I was wearing a shirt, like you could see like the lump on the outside of my breast.
1: Sorry to interrupt. What would this like out of curiosity, like what size are we talking? Like golf ball Like By the time you
0: removed it, it was about a golf ball, but it was right on the edge. Like it was popped out like right by the edge under the skin. So it was like very visually obvious. I started to try to get it imaged and removed in 2020, and I couldn't even get in to see a doctor till the end of 2021, and I couldn't get it removed till January of 2022, and I mean, I had to fight to get it removed because they basically told me it was cosmetic because it had been biopsied and it was benign, so they removed it and never heard anything back from the doctor, and no news is good news, right? Because no news is good news. Surely they call you right away. No. I got my pathology report. The lab holds it for a certain amount of time for doctors to review and then they email it to you. I got it emailed to me at 515 in the evening on a Thursday and I was like, carcinoma? Like, hmm, that doesn't seem right. So anyway, that's how I found out I had cancer. So from there, I went and saw an oncologist. So they had removed the entire mass, but the margins were really small because when something's benign, they want to spare as much tissue as possible. So nobody thought that this was Cancer. So when you took it out, the margins were really small, like almost non existent. So my oncologist told me that we had to go back in, do a partial mastectomy, which is where they take a larger chunk of tissue out and then they inject radioactive material. I have invasive ductal carcinoma, stage 2b, if there's any cancer people out there and they want to know what kind of was ER, ERPR positive, HER2 negative. It's ductal carcinoma. It means it's carcinoma that derives in your milk ducts. So they inject a radioactive material into your areola that's then it uptakes into and drains to the path into your what's called your sentinel nodes in your armpit, which is where the cancer would spread first. And they remove all of those to check them for cancer. So I had that surgery. All of the lymph nodes were negative. But they do a test on your tumor. That's called an oncotype. And they can determine the rate of aggression of recurrence for distant metastatic cancer, which means cancer that has spread to other parts of your body, not your breast. And at that point, it's considered stage four cancer and it's incurable. So mine was considered high risk of recurrence. So the curative method for that is chemotherapy because it kills any micromets that have like deposited anywhere in your body through your bloodstream. So I did five months of chemotherapy. And then I did eight, or let's see. I think I did eight weeks of radiation. And then I was on, because my cancer's hormone receptor positive, I take estrogen blockers. It blocks the estrogen from being used by your body. So I was in medically induced menopause. But then in the medicine that I take to prevent the breast cancer from coming back can cause uterine cancer. And I had some growths on my uterus. So I then had a total radical hysterectomy at the beginning of last year. Yeah. So they took everything out like cervix, fallopian tubes, ovaries, everything. So I'm in menopause. So not only are my ovaries not producing estrogen, but I also take medication that any naturally occurring estrogen in my body basically can't be utilized by my body. So what that looks like for somebody that's been an athlete, pretty much their whole adult life is a lot of people gain weight during chemo, which is surprising. People don't always associate that because you see everything in the movies where people are just like, Rail thin, but they give you steroids. There's a lot of medications they give you to mitigate allergic reactions to the chemos that cause weight gain. The medication causes a lot, and menopause itself causes a lot of joint pain and fatigue. Obviously, I was bald, and my hemoglobin got really low. my white count got really low, and so. You know, you finish treatment, and you ring this bell, and it's supposed to be this celebration of everything you've overcome, and you're left with this body that's super broken and not recognizable, and it doesn't do any of the things that it used to do before. And if it does do them, it doesn't respond the way it did before. And that was harder for me than doing chemo. There was definitely a period at the end of 2022. So I finished treatment in November of 2022. And I would say from that time till probably spring of 2023 was probably bar none, like the darkest time of my life. Like, I think that I had a little bit of suicidal ideation. I mean, I went to my healthcare provider and I was like, Hey, I'm just checking in with you. Cause like, I think maybe I'm suicidal, but like, can you check me? Like kids are a test you can do like to see if I am. But I think a big part of that was, I just felt like I lost myself, my life, everything I worked for, I felt like it was gone. And I couldn't accept that. I just i couldn't accept it. And I think going through that, that made me realize how much of my identity was tied into being an athlete. And I think that that can be good in a lot of ways, but I think it can really be a downfall in a lot of ways. And so... Coming back to running, for example, I've run Boston Marathon. I was a very fast runner. I had worked up to being a fast runner. I was an accomplished trail runner, but I struggled to run a mile without walking and to run it, you know, at quicker than like, you know, a pace that would have probably been like close to double of the pace that I ran before. And I think one of the reasons it was such a relief when I finally hooked up with Alex was because I had something other than the voice in my head to gauge if I was okay. And obviously you need to make sure that you have a coach that is safe to put that trust in, (laughs) but I felt very safe trusting Alex with that. But the reason that I had approached Alex is because I ran my first half marathon after chemo and after treatment. And it was probably one of the first times in my life that I could not make myself like push through. And I was just... Absolutely stunned. I didn't know what to do with that because I've always been able to push myself physically. And I was just like, no, I have to walk. Like it's too hard or, you know, and I felt like the reason that I was approaching Alex was so that I could get on my mental game and I could run faster. And boy, was that totally not the case, which I'm super happy about. But I think through the last year of us working together, it's been mainly a journey of radical acceptance of where I'm at and what is possible for me. And I think the acceptance of where I'm at actually allowed me to hope again, because I think trying to create expectations based on a person that no longer exists was making me feel very hopeless. I thought cancer was going to be this thing where I beat it and then I got back to myself. And it's not like that at all. My cancer can recur for up to 10 years. So they monitor you and when it recurs, it typically recurs as metastatic cancer, which is stage four cancer, which means you'll be on treatment the rest of your life and your body's not the same and it's not going to be the same and you're not going to make it be the same by hating yourself or by trying harder or by grinding more like it's not going to be the same. But the thing that is the same and a little bit better is the things like you loved before you can still do them and love them. And the things that you used to feel like a badass at, if you just change the idea of what success is, you can be a badass at them again. Like I was thinking, okay, last year was like my 12-minute pace. Like this year's like my 11-minute pace year. And then maybe next year's my 10. So like by the time I'm like 55, like I could probably qualify for Boston again, you know? (laughs) But I mean, thinking about it like really slow, consistent, love for myself and acceptance of where I'm at. And just think about like, where that will lead you. Like, Alex, when I've been like, weighing myself and taking photos, I'm not even looking at those. I'm like, you know, when I'm going to look at these Christmas, like, because then I'm going to be like, wow, you know what? Good job, Sherry, you've come a long way. I'm just gathering data so that I can see all of my hard work, because I'm not going to remember like what January was like, or what my weight was like, because I don't care about that. I just care about feeling good every day and doing the things that I'm supposed to do that will eventually lead me to a place that's not here. And I don't know where it will be, but I don't like where here is. So if it's in a different place and I don't like that place, then guess what? We'll make another plan and I'll go to a different place. But it's just that sense of relief and freedom again. But this time it's from myself and the weight of my own expectations of what being a cancer survivor looks like. And I think that people put a lot of weight on cancer survivors to be grateful. And I am grateful. And I'm sure most cancer survivors are grateful. But cancer and subsequent treatment changes your body in a way that you didn't ask for or bargain for. And that's something to grapple with. And I don't think it ever goes away. I mean, you're never going to feel like, oh, well, it's just great that I have no uterus. And wonderful that I have vaginal dryness and joint pain. It's just spectacular. Like, I'm sorry. If people are saying that, like, shut up. No, that's not true. But you can come to a place where you're like, yeah, you know what? People get dealt a shit hand of cards and this happens to be my shit hand of cards, but we're going to play it. You know, that's kind of like, I think that's like my cancer story kind of. And like the journey through meeting you. And I definitely feel like I'm in a way better, different Good place now than when we first. Start. I mean, when we first started working together, I was constantly like, "This isn't enough. This is too much. I need to do this. I'm not, you know, oh, I need to do this aggressive cut." And then I'd be like, oh, "I'm hungry," like you know, and I'm just like, "Oh my gosh, Sherry, what are you doing?" But I felt so unwilling to stop and say, "Where am I at right now? How can I meet myself where I'm at and start?" I wanted to see where I wanted to be. And I wanted to figure out what that person would be doing, but I'm not that person anymore. I'm the person I am now. And so I'm trying to do all these things that I did with a different body, with a different mindset, with it honestly, a different ability to disassociate from pain. Once you heal your trauma, your ability to disassociate from physical pain when you're pushing yourself in endurance races is not the same. Do I want to go back to that? Fuck no. No, you could not give me enough money. To be able to qualify for Boston, but feel inside of myself that sense of disassociation that I could do because I had to survive using that. So it's like everything's a trade off. It's just a matter of seeing like what the good parts are of who you are now and not just longing for the good parts, the perceived good parts of where you used to be, you know, and that's been a big thing for me with cancer, a big thing. And it's a big thing in the community too, for sure. But especially for athletes, I think, because we're all, we all feel like just such a raw end of the deal. And, you know, some of us had abs and we had like great traps and you know, I've never been a stomach weight gainer and I'm like, what, what like is happening? So it's just,
1: yeah, that was a lot. That was incredible. Thanks for sharing. And yeah, I don't know. I, it's hard to even match that with a response. It was so great to just listen and hear in that story. Like, of course I know it. But I we don't often get on calls and I haven't heard the story kind of like, you know, start to finish, not that it was it was obviously truncated. But yeah, I think if you ever did want to make a career change, you could probably write a book. You have such a really awesome perspective and you're not afraid to kind of acknowledge the moments where you have had like less productive thoughts and those things that people, I think, shy away from sharing. And that was a
2: very refreshing story. And
1: yeah, I really enjoyed it. What you
2: came in doing is what a lot of people (laughs) come in doing that, like, got to do more. Okay, this isn't enough. I got to go on a cut. Like, we see that all the time with people who start. And the difference is that you transition to a better and a a different approach for you and where you're at. Not everyone makes that transition. But the cool thing is, you know, not that you want to, I mean, cancer sucks. You don't want to really compare it to anything else because there's nothing else to compare it to. But I think that, especially as women age especially women who were either athletes or have been historically very attached to their physical appearance for whatever reason that is. Getting older is really hard, going through menopause is really hard and it forces everyone I think to deal with this on some level and there's no alternative other than finding a new perspective. Like you can't white knuckle through it, you can't go back, you'll never be the person you were 10 years ago regardless of your current situation. But people spend so much time and energy and frankly, money trying to just go back in time where it's like, just do what you can do right now with what you have. So I hope that that's what, you know, people who don't have cancer, who will never get cancer. I hope that's what they hear when they listen to that, what you just said.
0: Well, yeah. And absolutely. I feel like this, I mean, trust me, cancer is not the only health issue that does this to people. I mean, and also frankly, like even going through a traumatic event like if you have a child die or if you get divorced and your like world gets shattered and you have to like start over, I think we can even do things to our own body that cause us to be in a different situation and I think that we have to stop apologizing even to ourselves. Like I remember thinking Okay. When Alex and I first started working together, like she was having me do burpees a lot, which is one of the reasons I bought an assault bike because dear Lord, I hate burpees. And I listened to your thing. Meredith had said a thing where she like said, I love burpees. I love burpees. And then I tried to do the thing where I said, I love burpees. I do not love burpees and I don't love them still. But whenever we first started working together, I couldn't not do lunges at all. Like I could not do them because I was in too much physical pain to do lunges. When I would do burpees, I had to get on all fours and then push myself up with one hand. And like, guys, like I can do lunges. I can do squats. I can get up off the ground really easily, like not using my hands. And like those things I can dismiss by saying, Oh, well, it's just this, or my pace was just this. It's not, it's not that it's progress. And it's basically evidence of your hard work. I was thinking, I was totally telling my girlfriends this, like when we were running, because one of my friends was saying, I can really see you improving like over this last couple months. Like I can see you like getting like faster with your running and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I keep thinking of this analogy because I love analogies. And I was thinking about how, like when you're really hungry after you exercise or something and you're boiling water to make pasta and you're like boiling the water and boiling the water. And then you're like, why is this water boiling? And you see all the bubbles on the bottom and you're like, come on, like just boil because I want to put the pasta in And I was thinking what I kept doing before was I kept turning the heat off because it wasn't boiling. And instead what I'm doing now is like I turn the heat on and like I leave the heat on low, but then a little bit I turn it up and a little bit I turn, but I get to keep all the heat because I don't turn it off. I just keep going. So like if I have a bad week where like last week I missed a lot of my workouts or if I have a bad week where I don't push myself. Or if I have a bad week where I have a horrendous run and I feel like I've never run in my life, I'm like, that's okay because your temperature's not going down. It may be didn't go up this week, but it didn't go down. And like, eventually you're going to boil. So like now when like my friend Trish was telling me like, Oh, you're doing good. And I was like, yeah, it's the boiling thing. Like I'm boiling like my water. And so I've been trying to remember that. Like when I have like a bad week thinking like, okay, like this week, probably you're not like making the molecules like smack each other faster or anything, but like also it's not getting colder. So that's good.
1: Very scientific
2: (laughs) uh, explanation. Meredith's like cringing. (laughs) No, excited (laughs) is the right word. That's you're adding energy. Yeah. It's definitely been a process and
0: I've had to change my data points of what success is. And part of that was going off Strava for a while. Part of that was not using my Garmin when I felt really yucky because I have routes where I know what the mileage is and who the hell cares what the pace is or what my heart rate was. Just go run. And if you need to walk, go walk. It's okay. And part of it was seeing something pretty. I usually always try to take a picture of something pretty during my runs and just finding the joy again in my body. Like my body does rad shit. Like even though a bot, like it got poisoned and literally radiated and like, they took parts of it out that are like needed to function and like, it's still doing rad shit. So recognizing that and like appreciating that and like stopping, you know, that moment when you're like on a run or a hike or a bike ride and you're just like, you have this sense of well-being about you. Like, yes, this is why I'm fit and I'm alive and I'm seeing this and it's amazing. And like, I want that. Like, I want that as much as I can have that. Like to me that's the real currency in my life. And now that I've shifted to that perspective, I mean, frick, I'm looking forward to my long runs because I'm like, who cares if I run like 2 minutes per mile faster or slower than what I was going to? Whatever. Like it's okay. I'm not winning any prize money here. I'm not going to be one of those people peeing in my shorts on the race. It's fine. <laughs> I will stop and use the bathroom if I want to. Dude, when I ran Boston, there was a lady and okay, I think I ran Boston. I don't remember what my time was, but it's probably around four hours. So like not anywhere near winning or anything. There was a lady that she pooed all over herself. Was she like elite? Oh, she was like with you. She was with me. She was not, we were not, I took selfies. Like, no, we were not elite. But I'm like, why do you poo on yourself? Like, don't do it. You can stop. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you did poo on yourself, guys, and you're listening to this, it's okay. But (laughs) maybe- Make different choices if you're not going to be the winner.
1: I did a pit stop in Chicago. I busted into a, I had to pee and I was like, I can probably hold it, but do I want to run this whole marathon having to pee? That's going to impact my enjoyment of the next three hours here. So I peed. The the kilometer after I peed was my fastest. See, because you were lighter. Yeah.
0: (laughs) When I did my Ironman, I had to pee so bad and you can't, they have a rule like you, because you go into the penalty tent, like they show you a flag and then you have to go in the tent and you have to be on timeout. But it was so long and I was like, what if I just pee behind the porta potty but I'm a rule follower. So I was scared for them to flag me down. So I waited, but if, doesn't it feel like forever, if you have to wait at a race, it feels like so long.
2: That's why when I worked at a bike shop and triathletes would bring in their bike for repair, I'd be like, I am not touching that bicycle. <laughs> no,
0: you know, they have urine on them 100%, 100%. or maybe poo also because they have their chamois. So they're like, oh, my chamois is like a little pad.
2: No. Oh gosh. I mean, if you want your chamois to double as a diaper, go for it. But it's not the adventure that I choose.
0: Yeah, you have to run in that thing on Iron Man too. Do you want to be running with your pee rubbing on your body? No, that's not a good life choice. No. no, I'm pretty intense. I'm very competitive. I wouldn't choose that. Yeah, you are intense and competitive. But see, me neither. Although when I qualified for Boston, I carried a hydration pack because I didn't want to stop. Like for me mentally, like stopping, like it was just too much for me. So like I was mocked incessantly by my group of friends, because they're like, you're carrying a hydration, you want to be as light as possible. And I had all my water, in it, like for the whole race and all my goo and everything, because I was just like, No, I must only rely on myself. I have to stay in motion. That's what I have to do. No, I did. Yeah. Which it turned out to be not a good day for me, like not a good race, even though I made my goal. And like, I knew at like, probably mile 12 or 13, like, Oh, this isn't gonna be a good day. This is gonna hurt. And it did hurt. Like that's the
1: most pain I've ever experienced, like in a race ever, ever, bar none. Boston is a painful one, regardless of whether you're even if you're having a good day. It's brutal that course. Everyone's always like, "You're gonna do Boston again?" I'm like, eh, not if I probably can." Probably not. It. But yeah, I, I wanted to ask you. So when we hooked up, you had a goal of running a marathon, and you did that, and I. I think I was talking to maybe Meredith about it because we called you, we FaceTimed you right before. And I remember saying, I think like what I really love about Sherry among many other things is like, I think a lot of people wouldn't even run another marathon because of that comparison. I just don't think people put themselves in that position to face where they are at with a time. Like, I don't even know what your time was. I didn't ask. I don't care. The fact that you did it and the effort you put into training was just amazing already. And like, not even amazing. It was just, you committed to doing it and you did it. And I think it's scary in a way that just running your first marathon wouldn't be for a lot of people and probably was to you. Like, you're like, this is where I'm at. It's a number you're crossing a finish line and it's easy to compare. And it forces you to say like, really lean into that. Like I am not who I was and that's okay. And I, I think a lot of people would maybe try to avoid that. I just thought that was more of an accomplishment than the actual marathon was in a way. You know, that is
0: so insightful.
1: When you were saying that, like,
0: I felt the feelings that I felt like in my body, like the visceral feelings that that brings up for me, because that was a huge thing for me. I don't even know what my time was. I didn't look like, because, but it also doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, but I feel some kind of way about it. (laughs) And when we were running in Philly, my girlfriend and I hooked up with this like running pace group in the race. And the lady was giving beginner's tips. And she asked me like, does it offend you when people give you beginner's tips because like you're a very experienced runner? And I was like, no, because I honestly, she's totally encouraging me right now because I feel like a beginner again in some ways. But getting past the mental hurdle of You're starting from scratch. Like, this is your baseline. I walked a lot in that marathon at the end. And there was a point at which I'm like, there was a cutoff for that marathon. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, I've never DNF'd a race, ever, even come close. And I'm like, what if I get cut off for this marathon? And I was like, well, you're gonna walk your happy ass until they take you off the course. And then you're just gonna say, okay, I tried. But I think the vulnerability it takes and the courage it takes to try something that you were previously good at When you're in a community of people that knew you when you were good at the thing, it was hard. (laughs) I come to a better place now.
1: Yeah, I think that was a huge growth opportunity. And it's kind of what Meredith said in her post today, which today is February 6, if you want to look back on it, but about how like a lot of people, I think, protect themselves, protect their egos by not going all in on something and, you know, missing runs or making excuses or leaving something on the table, because if they don't like do well, whether that's subjective or objective, they can say, oh, it's because I, you know, I didn't get those last runs in because, you know, I had to go and help my kid with this, or I had to work or I felt sick or whatever it may be. Like you also went all in. You did every single run. You had everything dialed in on your training. I mean, you were dropping water bottles off on your course for your training runs. Like you weren't texting me and saying like i don't remember what i took in or oops i forgot my food like you had things dialed and you had things dialed for the race and you you said i'm going to do this and i think that's a really an indication of just like your strength and your resilience as a human like i can take this i can put it all in and i can take whatever the result is and yeah i think that's worth pointing out and that's something i recognized and a lot of people don't even sign up for races because it puts them in a vulnerable position. Like they won't even sign up for one race because it's like it's scary. They don't want to do competitions. And like, I'm not saying everybody should. It's not for everybody. For some people, it's not a growth opportunity. And I'll say that to people. Like, people will sign up for something and say, like, Alex, I don't really it's so stress. It's stressing me out. I'm like, maybe it's best that you don't. That's okay too. It's
2: yeah. The people who it it does <clears throat> mean something and it is something that they really enjoy, but they can't get over that mental hurdle of I don't think that I'm going to get the result that I want, or I think I deserve, or I used to be able to get or whatever it is. And that holds them back. And that's sad because it's like your inability to accept your situation, not only it takes away from your enjoyment of life, but like it doesn't change the situation. Like you can accept reality or not, but reality is reality. There's no alternate reality that you get to live in just because you don't like the one that you're in.
1: And it's what you said early in the podcast. It's not attaching your identity to the result.
0: That's really hard. I mean, I remember this one run I was on,
1: it was a really bad
0: run. And I was thinking like, of that quote, like, if you can't run walk, if you can't walk, crawl, keep going. And I was thinking, yeah, that's shit. Like, that sounds great. Unless you have to crawl because you're like, I used to be running. Like, I mean, I, Honestly, I have a whole community of runners that I host at my house that I can't run with because they're too fast for me. And I started that run. That was at my house where I created the course. And like, I know you guys are both competitive people and like, that does something to you. But okay, so like, what are you gonna do then? Are you gonna do nothing? Basically, if you do nothing, you're saying where I'm at right now is great for me. I accept it. And it's not great and you don't accept it then you have to do fucking something because otherwise you're implicit in your own situation. And like, it makes me have really strong feelings when I think about that, because I think about myself and the times where I'm like, I just need to find, I remember I had this really bad run and my friends joined me. I felt so stupid. They joined me. I have a couple of really good girlfriends. They joined me at the end of the run and I had to walk because I got too hot. I got overheated and I don't know what happened. I had to walk. And I felt so stupid because they had driven like 20 minutes, like arranged their day to park a car somewhere and like meet me. And then I was walking and they were going to get their run in too. And I just said, that's it. I'm not running anymore. I'm doing something different. Like this is shit. I don't want to do this. I'm not doing this anymore. This was during my St. George training, by the way. And so, you know, we got done with the run and I told my husband, I like to make big proclamations like that. That's what I do sometimes. And I live with someone who's like that.
1: You just need to throw some excitement into your partner's life.
0: I see you, Alex. I see you. But anyways, then like the next week we were running and I was like, oh, we should do this. And they're like, oh, so you're not quitting running, huh? But that whole day I was just like, okay, what sport am I going to do? Like people get their legs chopped off and they do like the cycle thing or like, okay, I don't have my legs chopped off, but I'm like, okay, do something different where you can really be a beginner. But I was like, I love running. Like I want to run. And I think that was one of the first real conversations where you're like, yeah, you just had a bad run. Like, you just had a bad run. And I'm like, no, no, clearly it's got to be this way bigger thing. And there's all these other reasons. And it's like, no, no, just had a bad run. Like, it's okay. And I think I have a lot of hysterical moments inside of myself that I swallow down that are very similar to that day. I've had a lot of them where I want to make big proclamations and I make them to myself. but. Those are getting very infrequent now and definitely less hysterical and definitely less proclamation-y. And so I feel like I'm on the right path. But yeah, there were some very hysterical declarations
2: made early on. That's just part of the process for you. I
1: think it's like, there's something about just being able to like, say like, I could quit if I want. It's like, almost like I'm in control here, you know? And then it's like, it's my decision to go back. I don't know. Maybe that's why I do it too. Oh man, it's the worst. And then I'm like, you, babe. Can you drop me off my run this week? Like
2: turns out like I'm not going to quit. And he's like, Oh, so you're still running, huh? I think that internal dialogue people think is one voice. I think internal dialogue can be two or possibly multiple voices. So you just accept that and, you know, deal with the ugly one that comes out sometimes and, you know, let your wiser voice prevail in the end. Yeah. When I was doing
0: therapy, I was with one therapist and she was Irish, like through and through Irish. And my internal voice was usually, you know, I have a complicated relationship with my mom and my internal voice is usually my mom. And it's not a very kind voice. And when I was finished with therapy, my internal voice was a combination of my voice and my therapist's voice, because sometimes it would sound Irish. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I guess this means I'm healing. I remember when my therapist was like, okay, you're good. Like you can stop doing therapy. And I was like, I can't just go in the world. Like, how will I know if I'm okay? And she's like, you can know if you're okay. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm okay. Like, do you have a certificate you could give me? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I wish she would have given me one. That would have been great. She gave me her cell phone number, but like, yeah, just check with yourself. That's one of the biggest things I was thinking about, like identity and stuff when Alex sent me that list of questions. And I was thinking about how much of my identity was formed Through organized religion and how much of the messaging that I got from organized religion is you cannot trust yourself. You are wicked. You are evil. If you have a feeling, it's because you're sinful. And I think that really lends itself to put people in vulnerable and abusive situations because you learn that you cannot trust your instincts. You cannot trust your internal voice that says, this isn't okay. Hold on a second here. And I think that learning to trust my voice, I mean, sometimes. You make hysterical declarations when you're trusting your voice. But I would say that's an outlier. Most of the time, you're making really good, sound comments on things you don't enjoy or things you do enjoy. And it's okay to listen to that. And you can know if you're okay. Like, you can know if you're okay. You don't always have to check with people. Like, you can check with yourself and be like, hey, am I okay with this? And then you can decide if you're okay or not. And that was a learned skill for me. And like I said, the messaging that I got from religion was... You can't know if you're okay. You need to talk to this person that's in a hierarchy above you so they can tell you if you're okay, whether that's a priest or a pastor or your Bible study leader, and then they'll let you know if what you're thinking is okay. And I just, I really disagree with that messaging. I disagree with that messaging and parenting as well. I mean, I think a lot of times kids know if they're okay or not, and we don't know because we're not them. You know, like my youngest is super introverted, super smart, and just... I remember when he started school and there were all these activities and I was like, you need to do this. You need to do that. And he's like, that frankly sounds horrible to me. Like, I can't think of anything that sounds worse to me. And I'm like, no, this is like what the high school experience is. And I remember him putting his hand up and saying, mom, I am not you. I am me. And I was like, all right, message received. And I think it's valuable for our kids to be able to say, I don't always need to check with you if I'm okay. I can know if I'm okay or not. That was definitely something I didn't learn until I was in my 40s. But yeah, it was scary when my therapist released me. It was like, go little birdie, like fly.
2: But I don't know how. Yeah. No, I was so scared. I think it's like, you were probably brought up a similar way to a lot of people are vintage where you you aren't as a kid allowed to be with your feelings or be angry or be not okay and kind of learn how to get through that and learn that's okay. It's okay to not be okay sometimes. You're kind of like, punished for that. When you get angry and have outbursts, you go sit in a corner. So then you go from that type of experience into a religious sort of church experience where that's reinforced. And then yeah, you get into your 30s and 40s. And of course, you're not going to know how to check in with yourself or how to feel okay. I think that's really common. You don't even know yourself.
0: I mean, like I remember my therapist gave me this activity where I was to carry an index card in my purse and when I realized something that I knew to be true about myself as a person, I would write it on that card. And I walked around with a blank card for a really long time because everything that I knew about myself was through the lens of being a mom or a wife or a church person or a friend or a daughter. I didn't know anything about myself at all. I didn't even like the first time I went grocery shopping after my divorce, I'm like, I don't even know what food I like because I've only bought food to please the people that I live with. And I was in my forties when that happened. Mm, No, not true. I was like 39. But like, I remember when I started dating my husband now, we've gotten to a heated argument one time because I swung, okay, it's like, I was probably way over here, like submissive. And then I swung way over here, like the first time we went out and he was like, what do we want for dinner? And I'm like, there's no we like, you can want what you want. And I can want what I want. He's like, I literally just want to know what food you want. But I remember telling him, I can't fall in love with you because I have my card. And like, I want to have my card still. And I was clinging to that because I'm like, I thought you had to give all of that up to be with somebody. And he's like, I don't want to take your card, babe. Like you can still have your card. And I didn't know love could be like that. I thought it was your card had to be a joint card. You couldn't have your own card. And becoming aware of who I am was so scary because like when I was in my bad marriage, everything could be the other person's fault. So I had no responsibility for anything. I could say, I didn't do that. Like that wasn't my responsibility. So then when I started to figure out who it was, I'm like, oh yeah, I have like annoying things about me or I have things that aren't the greatest about me. And I wonder if other people can see these things. Hmm, Maybe they can. And that was really scary, but man, it's worth it. It's totally worth it. You could have your own card of things, and it's awesome. I love that. The first thing on my card was, I like golden Oreos, and I don't like brown Oreos.
2: Oh, that is an important distinction. I like brown Oreos. Oh yeah, so does my husband, but the golden ones are way better. That was the first thing on my card. Very first thing. Sad. That's the icebreaker. Like it's hey, not
0: Oreos. What's next? One hundred percent.
1: That's, I mean, from talking points, that's pretty much all I have. I think, like I've said, and, and the reason why we had you on the podcast is just, I mean, it's exactly, I think, what you said and what you shared and your perspectives and your shifts and all those things really, like, have made me into a better coach. I think even when we first started together, I, I remember thinking, like, this woman is going to push me a little bit. And you did in a good way. And I was ready for it. But it was like, we have deep conversations. We talk about things that I'm new to. And even things like, you know, Alex, I want to go on a cut. It's like, I often will say like, okay, let's give this a go for two weeks. Unless something is very, very extreme. I won't say no to somebody. I'm like, it's a process. You don't know what's going to work for someone. You don't know what's not going to work. And you kind of took everything in stride. And you, like I've always been saying this whole podcast, like you're just very reflective. And I think that's so beneficial. And Really, really, really appreciate you taking the time today to share your story and or at least parts of your story, and I'm really, really looking forward to continuing our work together and seeing you in person again in Calgary for Run club, the run club meetup
0: oh I'm so, I love Run club like I feel so like cool like we're in the club, you know, like, and I like our little like discord group because everybody's so different, and so it's like they live in different places, they have different backgrounds, and it's just it's a really cool, diverse group. I really, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your style of coaching. I feel like you letting me do things that I ask to do helps me realize what's right and wrong for me. And I can take that into myself rather than think, well, Alex is not letting me do this. And then I do it and I'm like, Yeah, she probably knew that that was a mistake. But she was like, all right, you know what, here's a little bit of rope here, you go ahead and try that. But you guys have a very unique combination of super well backed, informative content, along with just humility, I feel like you both are human beings, and you don't have this unrealistic expectation of people. And because of that, like, it allows people to relax and be who they are. And I mean, I've, had multiple coaches and it's, it's just, it's very beautiful. Like the work that you guys are doing and the other people that you have, cause I've interacted with like the other coaches and stuff. And it's definitely the energy of like what you put out for your company. And it's just, it's very cool as somebody that has thought about pursuing that as a career. I'm like, if I ever did this, this is the style I would want to embrace because I like the way you interact with the clients. I like the texting and it's just, you guys do a really good job. So I appreciate you very much.
1: Thanks. Yeah. That means a lot. Thanks for saying that. I think we uh, care deeply about each person and what we do. And I'm glad that that's reflected.
2: Yeah, that definitely comes across. I really enjoyed this. I've experienced your relationship with Alex as a sort of bystander, but I've been very aware of you for a long time and not just because we chat on Instagram. It's because a lot of the work that you do, I think is really impactful to Alex and you're definitely kind of like the ideal person to work with. So it's been really wonderful getting to know you more. And today was awesome. Yeah. I really like deep conversations. (laughs) So
1: hopefully our listeners like listening to them.
0: Yeah. I don't have time for the small talk now that much anymore, but you guys are special. Like some people have the magic and like the other people that have the magic, they could see the magic and you guys have the magic. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But you know who else has it is, I can't think of her first name, but the movement maestro. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. She's
2: got magic.
0: She has magic too. Yeah. So yeah, I think it was nice. I like it.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me.